The Athletic. Good morning. Welcome to the Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic. It's Tuesday the 22nd of August. I'm Tim Spears and today we're asking... Why have Manchester United performed a U-turn on Mason Greenwood? And it created this almost tidal wave of pressure, which became pretty much intolerable. How did Arsenal make it two wins from two in the Premier League? There's one I know you look back on and you might actually be pleased that you had to go through it the hard way. And how did AC Milan's new Captain America do on his debut? Did a couple of tricks on the sideline, got past two Bologna players and all of a sudden the, the Milan Ultras packed away in the corner with their shirts off. They all just roared. This is the Daily Football Briefing with Tim Spears. Mason Greenwood won't return to Manchester United's first-team squad after the club performed a U-turn following a public backlash. United had planned to bring Greenwood back into the fold, with Chief Executive Richard Arnold informing senior figures of the proposal early this month. However, shortly after those plans were made public by The Athletic, United, amid mounting criticism, have now mutually agreed with Greenwood that he should recommence his career away from Old Trafford. A case against Greenwood for attempted rape, assault and coercive control was discontinued by the Crown Prosecution Service earlier this year after key witnesses withdrew their cooperation. Greenwood denied all the alleged offences and United released a statement on Monday saying their investigation concluded he had not committed an offence. Adam Crafton has led the way on this story with some incredible journalism and he joins us now. Adam, why the U-turn? Well, I suppose all of this goes back to around Wednesday last week when The Athletic first reported that Richard Arnold, the Manchester United chief executive, had communicated to the United executive leadership team that the club were planning to bring Mason Greenwood back into the Manchester United first team. There was a very strong public reaction when we reported that. United also put out a statement themselves that day kind of fudging slash denying that a final decision had been made but clearly you know a huge amount of planning had gone into this and by Friday we then made further reports which added details about this plan elements such as for example United had even gone to the lengths of preparing kind of a method for what kind of training photos would be taken of Mason Greenwood and how they would be filtered to the public in order to choreograph I suppose, the PR around his return, how Eric Ten Hag should deal with questions, not only initially, but after a few weeks and then even sort of medium term beyond that to begin to talk about him as, you know, any other player in the squad. Um, And then there was also the devastating detail that United had categorised what they called external stakeholders into being either supportive or hostile. And that included pundits and listing the names of journalists, but also even domestic abuse charities who were put in the hostile category. And that triggered a a really significant backlash internally with staff members who, you know, were making very clear that they saw this as a potential resignation issue. Some staff members were even talking about how do we organise a strike? Supporters groups were very unhappy. They started sending out surveys to members. Charities started to speak out against Manchester United members of parliament. And it created this almost tidal wave of pressure that was on Manchester United, which became pretty much intolerable for the decision makers. And it led to crisis meetings on Friday evening, which culminated in the decision that 
after all, Manchester United can't proceed with this plan. As United say in their carefully worded statement, they're going to come to an agreement with the player. Why is his contract just not being terminated? Well, I think Manchester United are, are in the very awkward position that everyone kind of knows, including Mason Greenwood, that the club didn't consider that he had committed any of the offences that, that, that were alleged. Obviously, you know, he'd always denied those offences and the charges were dropped and Manchester United, in their explanations, reiterated that and therefore you you could probably say that United didn't believe they had grounds to simply terminate his contract for things like, I don't know, bringing the club into disrepute or unprofessional conduct or whatever that clause would be. And as a result, it leaves them with, I suppose, three options, which are sale, loan or settle. And I think that's what they're going to have to be working with going forwards. So I think the big question is, you know, does a loan move, say he was to go out on loan for a season, I think supporters would then wonder... Well, if he's going out on loan for a year, does that mean he can come back, given that he'll have two years left on his contract? United are insisting, you know, as of today, that they aren't expecting him to play for the club again. So although there isn't a finality in the statement, there is certainly that feeling coming from the club. So those are the options. Um, do we have any sort of time frame on, on how they move forward now? Uh, it's Manchester United under the Glazer family, so nothing moves fast. Um, but there is clearly... The reality of a transfer window, you know, we're into almost the final week of August now and therefore you would think that if there's going to be a loan or a sale, that needs to probably happen pretty quick. I think that's probably in everyone's interest at this point. You know, this has dragged on for a very, very long time. It's taken Manchester United over six months from the moment they opened their internal process to come to some kind of resolution. And and if they can't find a club um, to loan or sell to, then they may have to try and come to a mutual termination and United might have to spend money actually to pay up his contract. Arsenal made it two wins from two in the Premier League with a hard-fought 1-0 victory away at Crystal Palace on Monday night. Captain Martin Odegaard scored the winning goal from the penalty spot after striker Eddie Nketiah was fouled by Palace keeper Sam Johnston. But Arsenal was soon reduced to 10 men when left-back Takahiro Tomiyasu, in the team for the injured Urian Timber, was booked twice in the space of just seven minutes. Palace had their chances, but Tyrick Mitchell fired over in stoppage time and Arsenal held on for a victory, which gives them a 100% record in the early knockings, along with Manchester City and Brighton. Arsenal writer Jordan Campbell was at Sellers Park and he's here to give us the lowdown. Jordan, another win, but they had to do it the hard way. Yeah, they definitely did. Um, that was a tense last 25 minutes. It was a difficult first half. They struggled to really break through Palace, but they got the goal early in the second half. Quick thinking from Martinelli. I think that looked like the only way a goal was really going to be scored tonight was something a bit magic, something a bit different because Palace were so well organised. So they got the goal through Odegaard, but then the game sort of died for the next 20 minutes until... Arsenal started taking a little too much time with <laughs> set plays and Tommy Asu got a needless yellow card and then a minute later he gets turned by Ayu and slightly touches him, slightly tugs him back and he went down very easily but there was enough to give the referee a decision and after that they had to try and seat it out with 10 men so probably not the, not the most comfortable way to win a game but when you get through it you win 1-0 at a difficult away ground and you end up with two wins from two I think is one of those you look back on and you might actually be be pleased that you had to go through it the hard way. 
only two games in, but perfect start. You know, only City and Brighton can say that as well. And you can see it at full time how much it meant to the players. You know, this this is a big early win, isn't it? Oh, it's a huge win. I think with City, we just know how relentless they are that last season Arsenal had to really give themselves a head start when City were still trying to get up to full speed. If you give them even an inch at the start, psychologically, imagine having to claw back City rather than try and see them off. I mean, I just think it's impossible to be chasing them because they just don't slow down. So I think it's a huge one for Arsenal and yeah, keeps them level with Brighton and City. And I guess that's all you can, in the early parts of the season when you're you're juggling injuries, you're trying to get the right system, fit new players in. That's all that matters at the end of the day. You're listening to the Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic. AC Milan and new signing Christian Pulisic got off to the perfect start to the new Serie A season last night. The Rossoneri, who reached the semi-finals of last season's Champions League, have strengthened in the summer with additions such as Pulisic, his fellow USMNT international Yunus Musa, and Pulisic's ex-Chelsea teammate Ruben Loftus-Cheek. Pulisic's arrival in particular has generated plenty of excitement in both Italy, where the premier football paper La Gazzetta della Sport heralded him as Capitan America, and in the States, where Milan shirt sales have inevitably rocketed. Pulisic marked his debut with a first-half goal as Milan won 2-0 at Bologna on Monday night. And who else but James Horncastle was there to witness it. James, the score sheet tells me Pulisic did pretty well, did he? He did. It was quite interesting. The first chance of the game, it fell to Bologna and it was on Pulisic's side in that they'd kind of got sucked in at AC Milan trying to press Bologna on the left and all of a sudden... They were unsuccessful and this guy, Liko Janis, he's bursting forward and he hits the bar and you thought, oh, that's, that's not ideal. But then Milan sort of calmed things down and Pulisic unlocks the game because uh, he has this sort of angled ball to the far post to his fellow debutante, Tijani Renders, who just cuts it back and it's more or less a simple tap-in for uh, Olivier Giroud. And it relaxed them a little bit. And it seemed to relax Pulisic because 10 minutes later, he scores his first goal in Serie A. And I think what you could see in that goal was things that they've worked on in pre-season and how much Pulisic has benefited from having a full pre-season because Milan signed him before they went on tour in the US. And so you could see from, from that point on, he was trying things because he knew he'd... He was on his way, so to speak. So did a couple of tricks out on the on the sideline, got past two two Bologna players, and all of a sudden the the Milan ultras all the way on my to my right now, packed away in the corner with their shirts off in this hot and sweaty late summer here in, in Bologna. They all just roared. So on that note, to score, be involved in a first goal, win two 0 clean sheet. I mean it's it's pretty good. Um, you keep me top on, James, if that's OK, just for now. He's had quite the welcome, hasn't he? You know, the Capitan America on the front of Gazetta and shirt sales booming in, in, in America. I mean, as, as you said this morning, it's, it's sort of make or break for him. It feels like this isn't going to be the Pulisic we saw at Chelsea and, and he can have a real, you know, upward curve in his career here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think until people actually come to Italy... They don't understand how you are treated differently here as a footballer to other places. He was welcomed in the terminal at Malpensa Airport. He was, yeah, he had fans outside the, uh, the gates of the clinic where he was doing his medical. They were outside Casa Milan, the headquarters where he signed his contract. 
And when it comes to shirt sale numbers, yes, they're obviously massive in the US, but what struck me was that 45% of all of them are Pulisic number 11 shirts. It's not just, you know, sort of 45% of what they're selling in the US, 45% of the whole. And so I think all of that creates a positive environment around the player, which facilitates their integration. And the, the, the last thing that I'll say on that, Tim, it's really interesting watching him warm up. You know, he was with Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who he knows from Chelsea. And Giroud, you know, we've mentioned the goals. Here's a one-two with Giroud. And I think as much as, yeah, the fans in the club have made him welcome, it does help having guys that you've played and trained with in the past to make, make this feel like it's just another football club, another football team. It's not another league. It's not another country. It's something where you can be comfortable. Right, TV time now. Barely any football on later, to be honest. But there are some Champions League qualifiers, with the pick being Rangers v PSV, which is on TNT at 8pm in the UK. In the States, the best you've got is Copa Libertadores action, with Bolivar versus Internacional at 6pm Eastern time on Being Sports. That's all for today. I've been Tim Spears. Your producer was Abby Patterson and your executive producer was Ian McIntosh. Thank you so much for listening to us every weekday. If you haven't already, please subscribe and we'd love you to leave us a review and spread the word. The aforementioned Abby Patterson will be back with you tomorrow. Until then, have a great day. The Athletic.